Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. In this podcast, we discuss life as a security leader and challenges and opportunities that accompany the job. Listen to our past episodes at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we are joined by Phil Morris. Hi, Phil. Hey, Nabil. Happy New Year. How are you doing? Happy New Year. I'm doing well. Phil leads the Altera Health Cyber Defense and Cyber Operations efforts. He has led software development programs for commercial customers around the world and for several U.S. government agencies. He began his career in statistical analysis on Wall Street and continues to stay informed on AI and ML ops. But his focus now is on enabling teams to grow, focus, and deliver value across the entire software development lifecycle. Thank you for joining us today, Phil. To get started, we like to have a rapid fire round of questions to get to learn and know our guests a lot better. So whenever you're ready, give me the green light and we can get started. Okay, shoot. Let's go. Thank you. Apple or Android? Apple. What's your favorite Apple device? iPad. Okay. What's the most used app on your phone? And let's not pick like SMS or mail. Okay, fair question. Okay, I'll say Google Maps, but beyond that, that you're not looking for that. I'm an Audible guy. I've got hundreds of books in my Audible library. So that's usually my go-to when I'm on my phone. Awesome. What was your first job? Was it in tech security or something else? It was in uh, tech support. I was a tech support analyst or engineer for Marine Midland Bank in uh, what used to be Tower 2 at the World Trade Center. Awesome. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Oh, boy. I really enjoy Scotland, Edinburgh, and stuff like that. But I would say my go-to would be Seville, Spain, or any place in Italy. Okay. Did you get to play the old course in Edinburgh? No, I didn't. I didn't. Sorry. (laughs) I'm jealous for you. I think you played there, didn't you, one time? No, no. It's on the bucket list. Okay. I played it on PlayStation many times, but I haven't played for a while. (laughs) Perfect. What's your favorite meal of the day, breakfast, lunch, or dinner? Dinner. Is there a specific menu item or dish that you like? Oh, uh, no. My wife is a chef or has been trained classically as a chef, so I eat anything. Okay. I'm sure having a wife that's classically trained helps making you like anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our our joke in the house is, is she's taught me to cook. Whatever you do, you start with sauteing an onion. I I think at this point, if I were to make a birthday cake, the first thing I'd have to do is saute an onion. That's always what you're supposed to start doing. Depends on what type of cake you like, I guess. I guess you're right. Yeah. What's your favorite holiday? Oh, oh, that's a that's a good one. I'm going to shoot with um Halloween. Okay. Yeah, Halloween. I'm assuming you dress up. So, what were you for Halloween? I haven't dressed up for Halloween in a long time. The last thing I dressed up for was uh, Zombie Elvis. Okay. Okay. I'll have to see some photos later. That's fair. That's fair. What about you? What was the last thing you dressed up for uh, Halloween? As Mario. That would be perfect for you. <laughs> I want to see pictures of that. That sounds awesome. Yes, there are pictures, unfortunately, but yes, we can share them. What do you like to do when you aren't working on security? I love movies. I like theater. My wife, again, I'm going to refer back to Kara. She was trained at theater. She worked on Broadway for a while when we were living in New York and stuff like that. So we've always adopted theater and movies in that regard. My personal thing is I have a motorcycle, ride that, and I love to play golf or hit the white ball around. I don't know if I play, if say I'm good enough to play golf, but I like to hit the ball, white ball around. I'll play with anybody that doesn't, you know, swing their clubs in anger and yell and scream like that. Other than that, it's always a good day out. Of course. What was the last thing that you read? 
I'm reading several books right now. One of the books that I'm reading, it's a beta book that O'Reilly Publishing is just releasing. So it's an early release. It's Practicing Trustworthy Machine Learning. Awesome. What is the favorite part of your job? The favorite part of my job is when I have a team member who takes initiative and gets to roll a project forward, learn things in the process, and present it to executives. I'm like a proud papa. I love that stuff. Well, if then talking in that vein, what is the least favorite part of your job? Expense reports and anything to do with that sort of stuff. Paperwork, basically. Paperwork. The admin stuff is the bane of our existence these days. All right. Uh, Last question. What's your favorite cybersecurity event or conference and why? Black Hat. Specific reason why you enjoy it? Why? Because I like learning the new stuff. I mean, you and I know, we know attack paths and we know, you know, defense mechanisms and all the things that we do just in the daily operations. But it would be great in, in my view of the world, I'd have two conferences I would attend. One would be CES, the one they just had with all the new stuff coming out. And the next would be the cybersecurity conference right after that say, here's all the weaknesses we just discovered and the things they just released. I think that would be great. Awesome. Well, those were our rapid fire round of questions. I promised they wouldn't be hard, but thank you for telling us more about you. Uh, We definitely feel like I know you a lot better. Let's get into it then. The first thing I'd love to talk to you about is understanding how specifically your background in organizational psychology, how that might have helped you or it still helps you today in your role as a security leader. Okay, thank you. You know, that's a good question. My master's is in org psych. And when people ask me at the proverbial cocktail party what that means, I say, well, that's the study of screwed up organizations because, you you know, you're always looking at things that people did wrong or right and different ways they could approach the problem and trying to look at it from a critical thinking perspective. How has it helped in the the career? I'm going to answer that by doing something that I guess some people may say would be a little bit hand-wavy, okay? So most of the recent work has been in software companies that have been reinventing healthcare. That's what I've been working on for several years. So what I'm going to say applies to all businesses, but when we look at business from the perspective of its engineering platform or how its financial model works or you know the types of technology it uses or similar things like that, I think we miss something very important. And that's that 90% of what makes business what it is, is the people that are making these things happen. And that's what OrgSite really works at. So, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to have been trained on mainframe and client server and distributed tech and architecture and led large programs. And it's just been, I've really enjoyed all that work. But what you've learned, and I think you know this too, as you move through your career in that regard, technologies come and go. And I remember being a young guy and being all excited about Visual Basic and what it was going to do and stuff like that. That stuff is, to a certain point, I think, transitive. You need to be able to look at what's going on with people. And so now, when I think about OrgPsych and the role I've got now, I'm always thinking about people. I'm thinking, you know, let's look at what's going on with the people. Let's talk about the institutional memory that they have. Let's talk about the nature of their spheres of focus or influence. You know, let's look at the informal bridging network that a company may have to move ideas around through itself and reinforce good behaviors and stuff like that. That, you know, and the way they use power in an organization and stuff like that, especially, can tell you a lot about how successful a business is going to be in the longer term. That's fair and a very valid point. And it makes sense. And not that you're aging yourself by telling us you were a young man when Visual Basic came out, but... I was what, three or four years old, something like that. (laughs) 
Well, you know, one thing I really enjoy talking to leaders like yourself about is mistakes that you may have made along the way. Are there certain mistakes that you can share with us, especially in the AppSec space, that you think others could learn from that you've made over time? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I've got a good one for you. We're in this business a lot, and it's second nature to us. So the technologies we work with and the way people are engaging is something that we take for granted that other people, frankly, many times don't have exposure to. So when I talk about application security, I'm talking about shifting left. I'm talking about preventing ransomware before it happens. I'm talking about thinking about an architecture from a security perspective, not just from its functionality perspective and stuff like that. And you start eating your own dog food and you forget that other people don't have that context. And if you walk into certain executive meetings, C-suite meetings and stuff like that with the assumption they know why AppSec's important, that's something that can really mess you up because you could quickly find yourself doubling back trying to validate some things that you assume were just, you know, not going to be an issue going forward. Do you still find there are cases where executives feel that AppSec is not as much as a priority as other parts of software development? Oh, that's tough. Yes, yes. And I think anybody in AppSec right now who's, who's got that job would agree with me. And I'm not saying anything against people working OpSec because those people don't have a life. AppSec, we have a little bit of a life, I think. But because I found myself in C-suite conversations where if people only know about the OpSec side of the business, that conversation can suck all the oxygen out of the room with regard to talking about AppSec. There's always firewalls that need to be built up or reconfigured. There's always new attack incidents that are happening. There's always forensics that are going on. And that can suck all the oxygen out of the conversation about what we can do to prevent these types of things happening in the first place. And that's where I think AppSec is really important. So if we can talk a little bit more about certain things that you are currently working on or doing at Altera that is working really well, are there any specific lessons from those that you think other security leaders could learn? My team knows that Phil has sometimes what you would call a philism. So one of the philisms is you can control a plan, but you can't control chaos. I like to focus a lot on process because if we can define a process, then we can manage what I call the crazy and deal with the exceptions as they come up in a way that makes sense. So we develop a process in our application security called the Cybersecurity and Risk Management Assessment. It is called Karma for short, and the Karma process lets us evaluate our program teams and our product teams and work with them with dedicated security champions that go through all the types of testing that you would expect to have, static testing, DAST, SAST, open source reviews, pen testing, of course, you know, that sort of stuff, threat analysis. We do all of this as part of Karma, and then we report back to both the business unit leaders and to the product owners of where they are with regard to th things that we see that could be important there. And that process has done a couple of things for us. It's built a really good relationship with the product owners and the business unit leaders, where before it was very adversarial because the teams saw their role as being policemen. And part of what the karma process has allowed us to do is build a good rapport with the business because that security isn't their most important thing. They're software builders. We're here to add value to what they're building and to help them avoid problems down the road. At least that's the way I see my role and our role, the team's role. So when we talk about how we're helping the business, we're doing it as liaisons with the business, not as policemen, you know, that are telling them, I'm going to write you up for that and that sort of stuff. That's really helped a lot. And I think that has been the key to the success for the team that it's allowed the leadership to start to invest more and more time and energy into figuring out how we can help the business. 
Do you think a big part of that success is that champions program? Or do you think there are other attributes of the Karma initiative that is to attribute to the success there? The champions program is important because it helps with some of the things I was referring to earlier, Nabil, on, on when we're talking about organizational psychology, you know, power networks and, and bridging networks, how people share information across teams is really interesting both to study and to leverage when you need to do it. The issue that we deal with a lot of times, if I could sidebar here for a second, is we don't really teach people how to be aware of the different types of dynamics that they get in a real business environment. You know, For example, my son just graduated from Columbia University with a master's, and they studied conflict resolution and negotiation. And that was a body of study that I introduced them to, and one that they really took off with. And I think those sort of skills, knowing how to manage conflict, knowing how to negotiate to a shared outcome, are really important skills that people don't pick up as they go into the business, especially in cybersecurity. So they come into the business with a very binary, it's only this way to do it sort of approach. And that's just not the way the real world works. When I see karma rolling out to other teams and stuff like that, the people it helps in the business, I think more than anything else, are the mid-level managers. I'm going to get on my soapbox for a moment. I think what we in Western society are doing to mid-level managers in our businesses, it should almost be called abuse. Being able to try to figure out what's going on with strategic or senior level executives, and then trying to make that operational and address issues as they're bubbling up from the individual contributors, that's a tough role. And I have a lot of respect for people who are trying to do their job and then also do stuff like security and things like you and I are only dealing with. And the karma process is something that's really geared for helping those mid-level managers and product owners and stuff like that operate in a way that helps them get stuff done and also addresses our compliance and our security needs as well. Okay, I'll get off the soapbox now. <laughs> no, that, that makes a lot of sense and, and is definitely helpful. A phrase I've heard you use in the past, especially when it comes to healthcare security, is that it's uh, complex, not complicated. Can you help explain or maybe even elaborate on what that differentiation really means? Okay, thanks. There was a framework designed by a gentleman named Dr. Snowden back when he worked with IBM Global Services a long time ago. It's called Kinefin. And it's a framework for helping you understand how you can make sense of the work you're doing and offer some ways to think about how to get things done that respects, you know, the nature of the environment you're working in right now. Okay. So for example, I have another philism with my team that says, be very careful when you hear the word just in a business conversation. It's just this, or it's just that, that's a warning that tells you that the person saying it probably doesn't understand all the things that are going on, the nuances of what's holding the back or frustrating them stuff, okay? In Kinefin, there are four different spheres of how you make sense of the world. Simple's really easy. Simple's, hey, this is how you do stuff. It's like tying your shoes or catching a bus, you know, you just, you just do it. Complicated, speaking to your question, is you got to think about, well, there's different ways you can resolve the issue. Some of them are really good. Some of them are best practices. But it's usually done with some level of governance and, you know, oversight. And it can be categorized as highly coupled a lot of times. Most of what we call agile software engineering is a complicated type of situation. You sense an issue, you analyze your options, and you work to resolve it. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Understanding the difference between complicated, which is where we spend most of our time, and complex. I think complex is just another thing altogether. There is no best practice. There's usually a lot of constraints you've got to deal with. They're all kind of loosely tied together. You change one thing and then it has these ripple effects that you didn't, you know, didn't see happening and stuff like that, or were almost impossible to figure out that you know, where the heck did that come from? Oh, that happened, you know, six months ago when we did this. 
what Kinefin tells you is the way you resolve things through that is through experimentation, evolution. You know, practices just emerge from the different situations you're in. A lot of healthcare is complex that tries to be seen as simple and complex that tries to be seen as merely complicated. And a lot of cybersecurity is exactly the same thing. I'll give you an example. We're rolling out a new risk management framework that the team's working on right now. And you may not know this, but I've been fortunate to do a lot of work with graph databases, okay? So I see the world in terms of graphs now, and it's kind of like being in the matrix. Once you see the graphs, you can't unsee the graphs, right? We're building graph databases that model things like NIST 853 and CIS Top 10 and some of the OWASP assessments and stuff like that in a way that helps us build a risk management or risk assessment framework that relates all those different catalog of controls and cybersecurity frameworks and stuff like that on top of it so that we'll be able to take this and move it not just from Altera but to an entirely different business that may have an entirely different set of priorities or risk tolerances and stuff like that in a way that respects all the different controls we need to be aware of to develop a risk profile, but at the same time accommodate the different things the business is working on. That's very complex. So the trick what we're working on now is making the complex complicated. So we've got things like weighting matrices and stuff like that we're building that says, when you're in healthcare and you're a mid-level hospital and you're trying to do these sort of things, this is typically the sort of thing you'd really want to be focusing on. But if you're doing you know, some sort of utility company, you're dealing with power distribution and embedded systems and stuff like that. That's an entirely different risk profile. And you need to be able to shift your perspective subtly, you know, 10 degrees starboard or something like that. So you can see it from a different perspective. And that's where you have to respect the complexity. There is no one way to solve that type of problem. Well, that makes a lot of sense. A unique challenge that I find when talking to our healthcare clients often is around the fact that healthcare professionals, since their focus is so much on providing care, you know, let's talk about doctors and nurses as an example, they are often doing things that have a heightened sense of urgency, and they need the systems and technology that's at their disposal to work when it needs to work. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to security, that's somewhat counterintuitive because the more security controls you put on things, the harder they typically become to use. Mm -hmm. There are obstacles and things and guardrails that are supposed to protect you, but often make the thing harder to use. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for people who are building hardware, software systems for the healthcare industry to find a balance between security and usability, specifically because healthcare professionals are notorious for hating even basic security controls like passwords, as an example. Right. Right. Well, we all know passwords are going away this year, right? With pass keys and all the other things that are happening. I can't wait for that to happen. I'm writing a blog post about that right now, as a matter of fact. I wish I could answer that question in a way for this conversation that would help somebody else, but it is complex and it's not an easy answer. When I work with team members, we've established a process that says, this is how we're going to be evaluating where we see risk. And there are some things, frankly, that I know are a bad practice that people come up and ask about, for example. And when they do that, it's my role as a subject matter expertise or somebody on my team or somebody on another team to explain to them why this isn't maybe the best way to address that problem. And if it is, there are some compensating controls that need to be put into place to make the risk more acceptable. I'm going to, again, stand on a soapbox here for a minute and describe an interesting situation. My predecessor for my role right now, part of his job was approving exceptions. And when I took on the role, I sat down with some of the business leaders and I said, I don't approve exceptions. 
And they're like, well, you know, we GA next Tuesday. You have to approve this, or you know, it's going to stop back the GA. Capitalize software. We got to, you know, all these sort of things. And I said, no, that, no, no, that's okay. You can release. It's all right. Here's the issue, though. I don't approve exceptions. I don't control your budget. I don't control your client commitments. I don't control your resources. Why would I approve something that we know isn't necessarily the best way to solve the problem? Let's find compensating controls together that can make this move forward that the business will be comfortable accepting the risk for because the business accepts the risk, not the security team. And many teams I've worked for, that seems to be a perspective that somehow got flipped somehow. Security approves that we're okay, and we can do this in perpetuity forever and ever. And that's just not a good way to run the business, I think. What's been your experience? You work with a lot of hospitals and healthcare providers and stuff as well. How have you heard other people talk about how they want to approach this type of a conflict dynamic? Well, the challenge there is the risk threshold and the risk tolerance and functionality of a certain service, a certain product that they're using, and the sense of urgency kind of determine what the right balance needs to look like, mm -hmm. especially talking to, say, medical device manufacturers, as an example. If you're building a defibrillator, you know, it better work and you better not need a password or something that's blocking you mm -hmm. in the moment when it needs to work because every second matters. Right. But being able to put other controls in there so that it doesn't, you know, fire off accidentally or, right. you know, properly trained person knows exactly how to execute it and get it to work versus someone who with no training may not actually be able to hurt themselves. Finding those balances and techniques are challenging, but I think humans are pretty creative in being able to come up with solutions that are very effective from that perspective. In most discussions, it seems to me that there needs to be proper threat modeling done to truly understand mm -hmm. the difference between the functionality mm -hmm. at hand and the security controls that need to be in place for something to work, and then come up with a proper way to implement that solution. It's definitely not easy. Kind of goes into your complicated versus complex discussion. It may not often be complicated to build. But the solution may be simple, but it's a complex process that you have to analyze to come up with the solution. Yeah, yeah. And experiment and try and see how it works and course correct from there. I agree with what you're saying. Another one of my side projects in my little mad scientist lab is building a connection between the AppSec world and the OpSec world. Too many times in many organizations, if they're not siloed by operations, they're kind of siloed by design a little bit. And historically, we had that problem. What we're doing now, besides liaisoning with the OPSEC team back and forth, is the threat modeling that we're doing or the threat intelligence that we're getting from what's happening in the market, we're translating that into actionable intelligence that I can take to somebody now and say, because of this, I can now appear on your network and you won't know that I look any different than Joe Schmo, a registered user. And nothing against Joe, but Joe did everything right, but because the team didn't protect uh, the AD correctly, or the access to a certain type of a controller or a system, now I can impersonate a user. And of course, that's that's what we're all shooting for. And I think that's the type of thing that really helps connect some of the dots between the AppSec and the OpSec world. And it's some of the things that help people in the healthcare business understand a lot more about what's happening. Sidebar, back when I was uh, learning Agile, I was taking a training class and the instructor at one point, he told us he worked for Infinity Cars, the car manufacturer. And he said something along the lines of, you know, Infinity ended up with like, you know, 9 million lines of code before they realized they were also a software company besides just being a car manufacturer. We all know, or if you follow the type of things that you and I follow, has Wi-Fi systems and entertainment systems and everything else becomes 
more cyber inside a, a car, for example, so does the elements of attack rise as well. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that sort of stuff going forward as more and more people start to carry tech around with them and it shows up just in their life, for example. Yeah, I mean, the automotive space is a beast of its own. If you start thinking of the amount of interconnectivity you have in modern day cars, right? There's Bluetooth, NFC, there's Wi-Fi, there's cell, cell phone networks that are all built in into the car along with software that is heavily relied on mm -hmm. from a safety perspective, from a regular functionality perspective, et cetera. I think if car manufacturers don't realize and prioritize the focus on software security, API security, inventorying their usage of open source, et cetera, they're going to be in trouble some much faster than they expect. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. My crystal ball, Nabil, is always cloudy, and I drop it a lot, so it's pretty cracked. But I think of identity access management as being one of the highest priorities that we have to focus on from an app set perspective, and API security as being probably number two. But, you know, you ask me this question tomorrow, I'd flip those around me. Yeah. Let's shift gears slightly. A common topic that's top of mind is around ransomware these days, especially around the healthcare industry. Are there certain strategies that you have that you believe has the greatest impact against uh, ransomware attacks? I'm going to go back and say awareness campaigns are probably the most cost-effective way to address ransomware. And they get poo-pooed a lot. But, you know, a lot of times the wink-link and a ransomware attack isn't the firewall, it's the person who clicked on the link. So I'm pretty diligent when it comes to phishing and similar attack patterns when I'm in the office, for example. But the one time I was tricked by our internal phishing campaign was um, I was waiting in line somewhere, you know, and I had a few moments and I just, well, I'll just check my email, see what's going on and saw something pop into my inbox with all the other stuff that comes in my inbox. And I thought, well, while I'm here, I'll just call through my stuff, just kind of prune some things, knock some things out. So when I get back to in front of the computer, you know, this won't be filled up and taken up my, my mental space. And before I knew it, you know, bang, I was caught because I thought I was doing something that, you know, was very well disguised. And, you know, that's just human nature. You can have so many layers of compensating controls, you know, your backups, for instance. My old friend who first got me into computers back in the old days, he works at Dow Jones now. And he had a thing that said, uh, there are two types of people in the world. There are those that have lost data and those who will lose data. Well, you know, now we're smart. We all do backups. But do we really test them all the time? You know, I think people say they do, but do they really? You know, that sort of stuff are the types of things that are common sense that can really help mitigate a ransomware incident if you can't prevent it altogether. We were talking about graph databases earlier and graph and graphs. There is a Microsoft VP, I forget his name, who once said attackers think in terms of graphs and defenders think in terms of checklists. And as long as that prevails, defenders will lose. What I get out of that is. You can have everything working well, but when Phil clicks on that link, that was the one thing you couldn't control. And that's all the attacker needed to get into the system. And from that point on, it becomes a containment issue. And how well can you contain something once you know it's been identified on the network and shut it down? I think ransomware is going to continue to happen. It's a very viable business. People are making a lot of money doing it. We're doing everything we can you know, to shut it down or be aware of it or get the right tools to identify it and isolate it as quickly as possible. But it's a good example. Is um, It's like managing COVID. You know, it's out there. And the best, in some cases, you can do is just manage the infection rate. Yep. Now, very well put, for sure. I know that you're a man of many different interests. And one of the things that we had spoken last time about was your interest in AR and VR. Mm -hmm. So would love to learn from you, you know, how did you get kind of drawn into that space? And what do you see the future being of augmented reality and virtual reality? Wow. Okay. Great question. Personal story. Back in the day, I lived in Los Angeles, uh, worked for Disney. 
and a friend of mine was going on a road trip and we were going to go up to San Padre Islands together. He asked me to go. And I said, yeah, sure, let's go. He was in the business. So we hopped in the car and headed up. We stopped in San Francisco and went to see his uncle who worked for this company called Industrial Light and Magic. And I was hooked from that point on. How can I get more about that? Know more about this. So I did 3D modeling back in the day. We exchanged stuff through CDs, if you remember those sort of things and stuff like that. So I've always had a creative bend toward the art of what is now AR and VR. I've worked with the Unreal Engine quite a bit. I like that. I'm just stunned by what the new tools provide that you couldn't have before. But let's be clear, Nabil, this is all programming. We talk a lot about the artwork, you know, or the space that's being created. Those are all commands and ones and zeros, and that stuff can be modified pretty quickly, and you can have some very bad experiences and some very bad outcomes from it. Once people start sharing, I think their personal data in a way that makes the shopping experience easier and stuff like that, they're unwillingly maybe opening themselves up to methods of attack that you, know, you need to be able to think about and plan for. Carl on, on the NetSpy team, for example, gave a presentation once to my C-suite to talk about how we've acknowledged so many pieces of software to help us do our jobs and then walked away from it that we kind of forget that, you know? I was downloading this app to help me schedule meetings better. That's all I wanted to do. And when that little thing popped up on the screen that said, hey, Phil, I need access to your calendar. You're like, yeah, whatever. That's why I downloaded the software. Let, you know, let's go, man. And forget that now I've got something that I don't know where it's going, that can read my email, for example, or read my calendar, my contact. That's an interesting way to think about it. Well, now that's going to become much more prevalent because to a certain extent, when you talk about AR and VR, you're saying, I am now an API, come talk to me. And that's a very interesting way to think about security in the metaverse and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Very true and definitely correct and accurate on how we give overly broad permissions to systems and software that we're signing up for on a day-to-day -day and uh, not realizing the, the actual implications of doing so. Mm -hmm. And especially it's much easier when you're using software that is very engaging and really immersive. I often see that technique being used in video games, for example, especially on mobile devices where it's like, hey, you want a bonus point? You know, share this on Facebook. And guess what? All of a sudden you gave access to Facebook to that game and then next it's like hey tweet this and all of a sudden twitter your twitter account's accessible to this game and, and so on and so forth it happens very quickly and very seamlessly unfortunately yeah yeah last question for you phil yeah. as we were getting started to record this session you mentioned that your cat was scratching at the door <laughs> trying to come in and join you for this interview so i'm a cat dad myself i have two i'm curious to learn more about your cat you know what's their name and how has life been with the cat so far as we're talking right now, Taki's running around the office. It's pretty funny. At one point in our conversation day, she's been in my lap. She's been on my desk. And now she's running around the office. She's got some zoomies. Taki is our three-legged cat, Ginger Tabby, that my son adopted, that has taken to the family and just awesome. There's an old joke about cats. How do you reason with the cat? The first step is, you know, you tell the cat what you expect. And then the second step is you give the cat whatever it wants. So Taki's awesome. We've always been dog people. And I'm really surprised how much I've taken to cats. I've, I'm an animal lover, but I'm just really surprised how much Taki and I bond. We wake up in the morning and go downstairs and I make breakfast and we sit out, you know, on the back porch for a little bit together. And I triage the day is what I call it and get ready for it. And then we come inside and, you know, just hang out. It's just, it's just a pretty good partnership. And you said Taki is three years old now? I don't know. Taki, how old are you? Taki says eight. Okay. 
Awesome. Well, hopefully I get to meet Taki one of these days. But Phil, thank you so much for your time. This was a pleasure and a lot of fun learning from you. And I hope to get to see you again really soon. Nabil, I really hope to see you too. I wish you nothing but a great new year to, and to everybody on the staff there. And I've always enjoyed working with you and the rest of the team. If I can ever do anything, just let me know. Yeah, appreciate it, Phil. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you want to join us as a guest on the podcast or have a recommended guest, please email us at podcast at netspy.com. Until next time.